Recording from the Sunshine City, St. Petersburg, Florida, overlooking beautiful Tampa Bay, this is the Sonography Lounge, sponsored by Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute. This podcast is dedicated to medical professionals and patients around the world interested in diagnostic and interventional ultrasound. Our podcast will discuss everything ultrasound, from news, trends, career paths, new technology, and industry updates. Hosted by Lori Green and Tricia Rio of Gulf Coast Ultrasound Institute, they bring over four decades of experience in the ultrasound profession and are here to guide you through this journey. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, everybody. My name is Lori Green, and I want to welcome everybody to the Sonography Lounge, where we talk about everything ultrasound. And I'm here today with Trisha Rio, our co-host. Hey, Trisha. Hey, everyone. So today, Trisha, I am super excited about today's episode on how the use of handheld devices are changing the ultrasound market. You know, I've been working in the ultrasound profession for a long time, since 1979, when I was just a youngster. And uh, it's amazing how ultrasound technology has changed dramatically over the years. You know, when I first started using, uh, when I first started learning ultrasound, I learned on a static B scanner. There wasn't even any real-time ultrasound around. Um, But soon after, we purchased our first real-time imaging system in our particular area. And, And from there... There has been so many more technological advancements and features such as Doppler and color and elastography and so many more uh, features that are available to us today. And along with those changes in technology, the size of the ultrasound systems have been significantly reduced. And that, of course, is um, enabled some affordability for other specialty practices, practices to integrate the use of ultrasound. Right. I know for me, probably you too, you've been in the ultrasound profession for quite a while too. Um, I never would have believed that ultrasound would be where it is today in terms of technology and that it would be able to be used across so many different multiple practices. And the benefit of it, of course, you know, is is particularly in the emergency medicine and critical care settings, the decrease of uh, time to diagnosis, treatment, as well as the opportunity to improve patient care and safety. So, uh, you know, I think this topic is is huge and point of care ultrasound is obviously a very rapidly growing area. So we're really happy to have with us today uh, as our guest, Dr. Brett Nelson. And Dr. Nelson is the director of emergency ultrasound and the director of the emergency ultrasound fellowship program at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. He is a professor of emergency medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. And he also has his RDMS credentials. And along with that, he's authored numerous book chapters and on point-of-care ultrasound, and he's actively involved in ASAP, WinFocus, and AIUM emergency and critical care communities of practice. And he lectures extensively throughout the world. And we've had the pleasure of working with him at Gulf Coast Ultrasound for many years where we um, co-teach together our emergency medicine, critical care, and other focus-related activities. So um, thank you for joining us. Welcome, Dr. Nelson. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here at the lounge. Yes, we're so excited to have you. So Gulf Coast Ultrasound has been offering emergency medicine ultrasound courses since 1994. And the systems we've used for this and other point-of-care markets continuously changes in size and capabilities. 
It's really amazing that the image quality is quite good despite having some limited functionality of system controls and in some cases um, types of transducer availability, particularly with the handheld devices. So Dr. Nelson, I know you've had extensive experience using ultrasound in a clinical setting and also working with a variety of systems. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to integrate ultrasound into the emergency department and changes that may have resulted over the years in response to these changes in technology? Well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, there, there, there's been so many changes. Uh, emergency medicine has evolved over the last 20 years, uh, to use that arbitrary time period, right? right. Um, the uh, radiology Cardiology, obstetrics, and traditional imagers have evolved. Uh, our expectations uh, about the immediacy that we get results for our patients and that the patients expect results from us has changed. Our relationships with the primary physicians caring for patients and the consultants that help in that team have also all really evolved over time. So I think some of the biggest changes in terms of all of that impact in terms of how it's changed um, the point of care ultrasound in emergency medicine has been that uh, the, the machines becoming smaller and less expensive and easier to use, as well as emergency medicine itself and other point of care specialties like critical care, hospitalist medicine, et cetera, um, learning more about these new developing technologies and incorporating them into their practice has made these much more available for clinicians taking care of patients at the bedside. So um, the average uh, internal medicine physician, the average pediatrician, the average emergency medicine physician, critical care physician, um, surgeon working in an office now have access to devices and training and a knowledge base that they didn't have 20 years ago. So mm -hmm. that, that's been, I think, the huge sea change. So I was able to um, you know, leverage with some of these things in my own department because there were, you know, I, I saw all of this as a microcosm in my own department of what was going on nationally and internationally. I had more and more faculty who already came in with training or were interested in getting training. I had availability of machines at lower price points. I had machines that were easier to use. Um, and, uh, and I had patients that were, I had more and more patients in my, in my department over the years. We've only gotten busier as a lot of people practices have been. So we needed answers at the bedside quickly. And, um, and we were therefore able to, you know, take advantage of that technology. I, that's, that, that's, I think the, the broadest brushstrokes of all of it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's mind blowing how much it's changed. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would imagine that with the affordability of the systems that that's allowed you in your um, own department to be able to not only continue to use some of your uh, laptop or cart based systems, but maybe add more handheld systems so that they're more readily available um, in different uh, pods that you have patients that might need a quick ultrasound scan. Yeah, well, we're lucky at Mount Sinai that we have um, a variety of different systems available to us. We have some cart-based systems, and we do have handheld systems from several different manufacturers as well. Um, and I think what we are seeing is that inflection point in the technology uptake where we have some clinicians who have purchased uh, devices for themselves, much like they've purchased their own cell phones, which is not a weird thing to say in 2021 
it would have been a weird thing to say, you guys mentioned 1979, 1994. Mm -hmm. right? um, those would have been very strange times when someone would have said to you, I bought my own phone that I carry around with me, right? That's, <laughs> and we take it, we take it for granted today. Absolutely. Um, so true. So we do, we do have all these different varieties. And I'll tell you, in my opinion, uh, and I think we see this bearing out in, in like studies that have come out across the country, certainly in the emergency medicine and critical care environments, there's room for all of it. There's, you know, the cardiology hasn't shuttered up and gone away and radiology hasn't closed up its doors and there's cobwebs in, the, in that department anymore. We, we as a medical profession, broadly, in the most broad sense, have need of comprehensive, consultative, fancy, if I would, if I'll be so bold as to say that, uh, you know, the, the really great comprehensive ultrasound examinations. And we need cardiology, maternal fetal medicine, obstetrics, radiology for that and vascular laboratories and neuroimaging laboratories, all these things. We, we, we needed them 50 years ago and 20 years ago, and we still need them now. We also need answers at the point of care, and we need clinicians that are armed and trained with devices that are going to fit their practice environment. So some of that might be cart-based, some of that might be handheld, some of that might be in the form of tablets, um, some sort of hybrid things that it's a device that could be held in your hand, but it's been mounted on an IV pole, so it's a very small footprint and able to move around. Um, this, this democratization of the technology has allowed a larger group of clinicians to make diagnoses at the bedside, to make procedures safer at the bedside, mm. and to do a lot of things we weren't able to do before, or to do things we were doing before, but we weren't doing very efficiently. And it, and it all interacts in that same ecosystem with some very rapid uh, questions and answers being taken care of at the bedside that move the patient's care forward, some generating more questions that need more consultative imaging, uh, and some things that can't be done at the bedside in all environments and that require, again, that, that, uh, that specialty consultation. So there, there's room for, for all of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would, you know, as you're, as you're talking there, I'm thinking that, you know, when we first started, uh, doing point of care ultrasound, particularly in the emergency department, there was a lot of, uh, uh, political barriers and inter, uh, specialty, you know, how should I say that? Um, uh, stress I'll say. And, um, <laughs> but, but as you explain all of that, it really is evident that not only is it benefiting the patient, but I would think that it's also creating a little more um, cohesiveness among the different specialty practices so that you can um, more effectively communicate what's going on with the patient. That also helps to get, um, you know, as a team effort to get the patient where they need to be. No, I agree. And I think, you know, we all, we all learn from each other. Mm -hmm. There are parts of my practice in emergency medicine, and Lori, I think I've said this to you over the years, where uh, you know I'm I have learned and I'm continuing to learn how to do part of my practice um, from what I've learned from radiology mm -hmm. or surgery or the vascular lab or cardiology. Um, and there are other things where, where they've actually learned from us, right. you know, and and some of and some of that is. Um, you know, not just in portable studies, but in, you know, the plasticity with which some of them are able to have orders entered, you know, because in emergency medicine, for example, um, you know, we ideally we want to bring 
the machine to the bedside and answer some questions. And we might answer the kinds of questions that wouldn't make sense for traditional imaging. Mm-hmm. We rarely in traditional imaging want to assess lung function and heart function. And by the way, while I'm here, look at a gallbladder. Oh, and since I'm here anyway, place an IV. Right. So that that single ultrasound machine in in my hands in the emergency department does all of these things. And um, the way traditional imaging has been set up, you would put an order in for one particular organ system type of study or maybe two or whatever it would be. If the patient, if if your findings, even during the scan, suggest that there's another organ system involved, you need to look in another place. Sometimes it was very challenging to get those additional orders put in and have somebody sign off on it and protocol it and do that sort of thing. So I think that we've actually seen, you know, some some more traditional imagers uh, think about how to be a little bit more um, flexible in terms of the imaging that they need for their patients. It's brought some of them back into the fold of really being consultants. Because I, I, you know, when I say comprehensive and consultative, I'm not trying to do some verbal gymnastics to hide the fact that like they do real imaging and other people at the bedside don't do real imaging. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just different parts of the same spectrum, right? right and I, right. the most valuable interactions I've had with um, you, you know, my colleagues who are doing some comprehensive imaging with me is to just pick up the phone and talk to them for gosh sakes, right? Yeah. And say, hey, I'm worried about these. I'm worried about these couple of different disease processes. What's the best imaging? What's the best modality? Which which parts of the body? How are we going to do this? You know, and um, and that's when you're taking advantage in, in the best possible way of, of your colleagues, and they're learning from you. So on their end, they don't get the rule out pathology question from the emergency department, which doesn't, where nobody loves to get that or like (laughs) chest x-ray for chest pain. Like what, you know, Mm -hmm. am I supposed to do with that? There's no clinical history here. They've got the story. They've got the interaction with the clinician. They, you know, who's sending them the patient and I get the benefit of a fully functional human being instead of just a person who is going to stereotypically sit in a dark room and read images on a screen all day. Like, no, they're actually doctors. They're doing like, let's have a conversation and, and, and get, you know, what we need from each other to, to do right by the patient. So, um, so yeah, I think it's, it's been, um, a really interesting journey for everybody. Uh, and, and as you mentioned before, as, as I think my sense is that nationally it's been less politicized, Mm -hmm. um, more recently, I think people understand each other better. We, we've always been lucky at my institution where, you know, the other specialties understand where we were coming from, the kinds of focused questions that we were asking at the bedside, the fact that we weren't trying to do comprehensive examinations, the fact that we would, you know, look a little to learn a little or look a lot to learn a lot and, and you know, try to choose the appropriate level of, uh, of imaging that we were doing with our patients. Um, and, and people understand that that makes sense, especially from like a holistic multiple organ system kind of perspective, which is how we often assess patients in shock or in trauma or, you know, other, other medical illnesses where it doesn't fit neatly into one of the categories of traditional imaging. Uh, and we can bridge those gaps as, as well as the practicality of off hours imaging, you know, nights mm-hmm. and weekends and uh, in places that are under-resourced. And I don't mean under-resourced, you know, like all around the world developing nations. I'm talking about like under-resourced like freestanding emergency departments or hospitals that don't have a thousand beds and right. you know yep. 17 mri machines like not everybody not everybody's an ivory tower or medical center in a, in a gigantic institution on the coast right uh-huh. so uh, there's a lot true. of places where you're just you know the clinicians are all trying to do the best they can for the patients and they don't have infinite resources so having access to a machine that is at a price point 
and at a level of understanding that that um, a clinician with the right amount of training can use it has just totally changed the game. Absolutely. Yeah. I think about uh, 10 years ago, I was working in a trauma center and, um, you know, they didn't have any portable ultrasound systems. The physicians weren't using them to help with their rapid diagnoses. And I remember getting called at three o'clock in the morning to come in to evaluate a shotgun wound. And I was like, you're going to wait for me to drive there to evaluate this before you decide what you're going to do with this patient. It was just mind blowing. And so I definitely see the benefit of incorporating that and getting the training you need so that you can use that, you know, in your diagnosis of your patient and to help kind of just swiftly take care of those issues, move them on to the next department where they need to be rather than waiting for a sonographer to come in and, you know, do your imaging for you and give you a report. I mean, we had to wait for the thing to be read. Right. It was crazy. It's just what a delay that created. (laughs) Yeah. And even beyond the, you know, traditional emergency department, critical care setting, um, there's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of um, clinicians working in rural and austere environments and the military. And it was a perfect place for handheld devices for the military to determine, you know, do we keep this person here or air, air flight them out, you know, to get get treatment. So, you know, that the the handheld devices certainly um, have a huge role. And yeah, it in makes my heart care. race just thinking about how much <laughs> it can do. So, uh, yeah. And um, you're right that I, I see here at Gulf Coast when we work with all of the different physicians across and um, and other medical professionals and providers that are across multiple specialty areas where we're when we're in discussions with them and there's a lot of point of care uh, applications that we've integrated into other courses like our abdominal primary care course. You know, we talk about uh, trauma and some soft tissue MSK and things that are also, you know, we're traditionally, we started doing those in the emergency setting. And, and so just all of those applications that once you start doing one application, then you learn another and another, and it crosses over and just expands your ability to increase your services to your patients and, and improve their care. So I think the handheld devices definitely are are playing a huge role in in that opportunity, particularly in that primary care area too, because of the price point. So, speaking of affordability, um, with the uh, handheld devices that um, are pretty, you know, affordable, and then you know, especially compared to the higher end systems, and so and it makes sense as you explained to perform a focused bedside ultrasound. So. Um, Price, however, is not the only factor that we look at when we're trying to determine what's the appropriate system to buy. And so what would you um, say are some of the other important variable factors beyond cost to, to support the use of ultrasound in clinical setting and, and what, what to look for if someone is considering purchasing a handheld device? It's such a great question. It's such a, it's such a challenging question. I think Whenever I'm confused or, or having trouble thinking about what to do, I, I try to remember the, the, the core focus of our ultrasound division, which is to improve patient care by providing diagnostic information to our clinicians. So I come back to that whenever I'm not sure how to deal with politics or finance or anything. So to, to me, to go back to that core mission, when you think about what you need in a handheld, it basically takes you to what in your department 
do you need to accomplish? And when I say department, it could be emergency department, it can be the intensive care unit, it could be in the hospital wards, clinics, uh, outpatient practice, and all those other environments that you've mentioned before. So um, when you think about what you're trying to accomplish, then it helps you wait. And, and, you, and you think about that first. I want a machine that can do X, Y, and Z because this is the training that my clinicians have. This is what my patient needs. Then you can start weighing things like how big is the screen and how, uh, how good is the resolution on the images? Is this a device that's better at looking at hearts and maybe not as good at looking at abdomen? Is it a device that can do intravenous access and high frequency, superficial soft tissue kind of things? Is it, does it do a little bit of everything and it's not the best at everything, but it's good enough at everything that it lets me get away with it? How rugged is this device? Is this a device that's going to be purchased by a single user and used by them like their own cell phone? Or is this going to be shared at, uh, at a particular institution, department, clinic, practice, etc.? Um, do I have to swap probes to do different kinds of applications? Or is it either a multifunctional probe because you can flip it around uh, and have different sides? Or is it because the, the probe is, is configured that it can mimic different types of information, uh, different types of scanning environments? So, um, you know, I think, I think those are all the different, uh, the different factors, or, or there was a sum of different factors. There are people, for example, who are going to use it for themselves, who it, it's very important to them that this uh, device can incorporate itself into the ecosystem of their existing cell phone because they already have that in their pocket. And carrying an additional screen is is a waste and another thing that draw, draws battery or heats up in your pocket. Um, there are other people who would like a, a larger screen and they want to have something a little bit separate. There are people who work at places where their institution is, doesn't allow medical information to be transferred onto a privately owned device and they're going to have to have a separate tablet that's been locked down by the um, IT security team at the hospital. So uh, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I answered your question by asking 15 more questions. But I think those are the, those are the kinds of questions that people need to ask themselves. Um, Absolutely. I, I personally see a future where handheld devices join the same crowd as all of the other devices that have found their way into your phone's ecosystem. You, you guys have mentioned the 80s and the 1979 and 1994, so I'm going to take us back there again. In those time periods, we all had a telephone, and we all had a television, and we had a calculator, and perhaps a computer, and we probably had a camera, right? Yep. And, now, and, and a bunch of other things, like a <laughs> flashlight, right? Yeah. And, um, and now... All and you're laughing because you know where I'm going with this. Yep. All of those things now exist on our phones. Yes. So I think that it's very reasonable, and we already see it happening. That you guys and me and me, I'm not, I'm not, uh, tw you know, 15 years old either. <laughs> um, <laughs> I used to used to push a refrigerator around, mm -hmm. you know, as the ultrasound machine next to the patient, right? Yep. And it was that big. Um, and now a lot of handheld ultrasound devices are basically entirely housed within the transducer and some of them are even wireless, but you know, it's a transducer plus a wire or a transducer sans wire and it connects to your phone. So I think the concept that this would connect to your phone, uh, in modern parlance, the same way that you can watch movies on your phone and have a flashlight on your phone and do all these different things, the same way from a medical prosumer concept, 
that we have um, portable de- uh, devices uh, that can do EKG leads through your phone, or we have a Fitbit or a um, or an Apple Watch or other uh, personal health devices that can get um, heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation, etc., um, and all incorporate this into your phone. I think it just makes sense. The the, the perfect storm now of um, the technology and what we want as consumers and where the ultrasound market is going is that a huge segment of the market is going to be a device that we buy for ourselves and that we keep in our own pockets so they're not institutional necessarily although it could be Um, and it would be like the way a lot of us use our own cell phones during our practice to look up medical information, get a better look at somebody's eye or throat or pick up a Snellen chart or just all those little clinical things that we use this hybrid device for. Um, so anyway, long story short, I think that that's, that's what a huge segment is going to be uh, where we'll see these devices um, just incorporate into our existing phone ecosystem. And then that can transmit images to the medical record in you know encrypted compliant ways um just like we can access the medical record for patients through our phones in encrypted and compliant ways yeah yeah one day we'll be able to just turn on our camera or our flashlight on our phone to scan our whole body and it'll tell us what's wrong (laughs) you never know yeah yeah no we're absolutely it sounds absurd but so does at all i don't think we're i think you're i think think you uh are Johnny on the spot there, you know, yeah. that's just the, it's amazing that where we are today and just as you explain where we will probably be going is even more amazing. And it just is, for me, it's very exciting because it's just the, the one wonderful thing about being in the ultrasound profession and utilizing ultrasound in your clinical practice is that it's constantly changing and you got to be on your toes and you're constantly learning something new and it challenges you to have to change the way you've done things before to, to be a little bit more efficient and quicker and so forth. But, um, but the benefits of, of having that technology available to you are, are so awesome. So mm-hmm. it'll be exciting. It's going to be an exciting ride, right? <laughs> <laughs> So even, and he haven't even said that too, and how um, the future of ultrasound and the use of handheld systems are going to be um, increasing and changing as we uh, move forward. We're already seeing that um, the use of ultrasound in medical schools and their training and into the residency programs um, with them being issued handheld devices and, and, um, What's your opinion on how that's going to change the learning environment and the level of proficiency using ultrasound when they complete the residency program and moving on into their, um, you know, patient care, further on to their patient care? Well, yeah, there's, it's already, it's already happening. Yeah. Um, and there are places like um, Mount Sinai and Ohio State, and Wayne State, UC Irvine, South Carolina, uh, and, and dozens and dozens of other medical schools that have either a little or a lot of, uh, of point of care ultrasound incorporated into their curricula. At some schools, the medical students are issued ultrasound machines. At others, they borrow them, which, you know, isn't that big of a difference. It's, it's as long as they can have access to them. Um, you know, at, at Mount Sinai, we have ultrasound incorporated into the, uh, the gross anatomy course so that we can see a living 
moving correlation in, in the heart to the heart that's being dissected in the laboratory, or we can look below the surface when the students are learning about surface anatomy and procedures, sort of give the, give the clinical correlation to what lies beneath the, those uh, surface area landmarks and uh, connect the anatomy to how we would do procedures. It's connected to our physical examination course. So as students are learning to um, uh, inspect and percuss and auscultate and palpate, they're learning to insinate as well. And, uh, you know, it was a few years ago when we introduced a curriculum into the medical students for the first time in a major way, um, they were literally learning it all at the same time. It was, it was amazing because I, I don't know if there had been an experiment yet where students who were learning how to uh, inspect and palpate and auscultate and insinate all at the same time, normally you would learn those physical examination skills and then later on you begin to augment them through the use of uh, point-of-care ultrasound. So it was really an amazing experience and it not only brings a greater appreciation of anatomy and physiology and physical examination, but it also means that the students are beginning to assimilate the, the, the skills and the techniques of performing bedside ultrasound uh, at a very early phase in their careers. So they're bringing that knowledge and, with them and often they're bringing those machines with them on the wards. And this is something that a lot of medical schools have to uh, have to deal with, which is um, the medical student, you know, used to say something like, I think I hear a murmur on the patient in, in bed nine. And now they might say, like, I, you know, the valve motion looks abnormal and the contractility seems off on that patient in bed nine. And they have an ultrasound machine in their pocket that they're waving at the rest of the team, you know. <laughs> and it's our job, I think, as the more senior faculty to make sure that the rest of the team isn't staring at each other like, well, what do we do about that? <laughs> So, you know, it's only increasing. There, there, are, there, there are no programs that are, that are reducing the amount of ultrasound that they're teaching. And we're seeing it, again, in, in anatomy and the, pre the traditional preclinical years with anatomy and physiology and, and pathophysiology. We're seeing uh, the uptake much more often during the clinical rotations, especially emergency medicine, intensive care, hospital medicine, um, you know, pediatrics, intensive care, surgery, and all of the surgical subspecialties. Um, you know, pathologists are using this to help guide their procedures when they're if they're doing their own um, if they're doing their own biopsies. You know, it's really the students are just seeing it over and over again. Just like they're seeing uh, a robust electronic health record, um, just like they're seeing what is hopefully, you know, uh, a new uh, importance on multidisciplinary care and culturally sensitive care. You know, the, the, the students today are seeing these things laid out in front of them in a way that they weren't always seeing it 10, 20, 30 years ago. So I think it is going to be their expectation that not only will ultrasound be a part of their practice, no matter what specialty they're in, but that they might wind up even owning their own ultrasound machine, just like they have purchased their own stethoscope, ophthalmoscope, otoscope, you know, right. the difference, if I may be so bold, especially on this podcast, um, <laughs> the, the difference being that um, usually a few years after medical school, you wind up mothballing those otoscopes and ophthalmoscopes and some of the other things that you bought that you thought you were going to put into some mythical black bag when you graduate. <laughs> and unless you're really using those things every day, you don't wind up doing it all the time. The right. stethoscope will become a well-worn device uh, right. that's going to be in their hand all the time. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Absolutely. That is so, so awesome. And it, and obviously it's a, a greater learning experience for the medical students and um, it's going to help them to provide better quality care and a better understanding of what they're doing. So, Oh, for sure. It's never been a better time to right. be a doctor. <laughs> I mean, it's just opening up so many avenues for them and they have things structured in a way now, I think, where they get to go even further than ever before they've ever been able to before and really drill down into these patients and get to the the heart of what's really wrong, which as a patient, you know, you got to be appreciative of that, that there's so much time and effort put into this just to make sure that our outcomes are where they need to be. So I mean, we're, we're talking obviously about the medical students and their exposure to ultrasound and how it's being integrated into these programs. But what about people who are already practicing physicians? You know, we obviously know that they also are interested and want to integrate ultrasound into their clinical practice, but find that the education piece is a little bit more robust than they thought, or maybe they just didn't realize it when they were starting to consider ultrasound, you know, they didn't realize the extent of training that was necessary. So can you discuss the importance of obtaining adequate ultrasound skills training, despite the size or cost of the ultrasound system? Well, I mean, I think... You know, it's challenging to have older physicians that don't uh, aren't as familiar with this technology. And I think we just have to understand them and allow them to retire with some dignity. <laughs> it, no, I'm kidding. It, it's, it's much, it's, it, it seems like it's a big deal, but it's, but it's not, but it's not, it's not a big deal. It seems scary when the medical students are showing up on the rounds and saying, you know, like I looked at the valves in room five or nine or, you know, it's, it's scary. I, I think that, um, even just a couple of YouTube videos to get a sense of like what's even out there looking through a really simple ultrasound book, you know, one, one, you know, just like one of the beginner level ones to get a rough overview of what's possible. There, there's a lot of resources out there that you, that can just jumpstart someone into thinking like, all right, listen, I'm going to take the plunge. Let me just see what, what can you do? How do you look at the heart, the lungs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just flip through the book in a couple hours. Okay. Don't even read anything in detail. Okay, so now that I have a rough idea of what's out there, and I don't know how yet to do it, let me just pick one thing that might be useful to me. And I've been practicing long enough, and I know my own patients, and I know my own practice, that I'm the the commitment that I'm going to make is, if I knew how to ultrasound this one thing, it would probably improve my practice. So what would that be? Maybe that's using ultrasound to guide a needle into the body because you do uh, biopsies or because you place intravenous lines and sometimes they're challenging Um, or because you're doing nerve blocks or something. So like maybe your thing is going to be, I'm going to learn how to use ultrasound to guide the needle so that I can tell where the needle is and so I can see what the anatomy looks like under the surface. And I'm going to try that and I'm going to take a course just on that. I'm not going to take you know, maybe I won't even take a whirlwind five day, you know, learn a little bit of everything course if that's if that's um, if that's too intimidating. Just focus on that one thing. Or maybe it would be great if I could look at lungs and be able to tell if those lungs were wet or dry or if there was fluid around the lung or not, or if there was a pneumothorax or not or pneumonia or not. And that's that's a pretty straightforward thing. Single type of probe, simple ultrasound machine. Don't have to play with any settings to do that. Or maybe a third example that comes up in the ICU environment pretty frequently um, or in the hospital environment or in a, in a home care environment. Um, I'm gonna, I want to look at a bladder. I want to tell if the bladder is full or empty. 
mm-hmm. without having to stick a catheter into somebody. Mm-hmm. So if I hear that a patient hasn't urinated all day, well, if they haven't urinated all day and they have an empty bladder, they probably need fluids or their kidneys are not functioning properly. That's a kidney problem. If they haven't urinated all day and their bladder is full, then they have an obstruction. It's an outflow problem. That would be really helpful to know rather than sticking a piece of plastic up everybody's urethra to figure out the answer. So, you know, I, so what I would suggest is to, to a clinician that you kind of know it's coming. There's some level of denial. Like clearly if everybody's using this and you're not, let's just admit to ourselves that it's probably because it's a reasonable idea and it's not a fad, you know? Right. So pick just one thing. And I only gave those three examples because they're some of the most common examples that I hear from clinicians from all different practice mm-hmm. types. Yeah. Um, and then just do that thing. And then once you get familiar with that and you've overcome the challenge, and it is a challenge. I'm not being facetious about this at all. I was obviously being facetious about the, the, dignity, the dignified <laughs> retirement. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the challenge of like turning the stupid machine on playing with depth and gain and how do you hold the probe and where do you put the gels, all these things that if you haven't done it, it's weird. And then once you've done it even a little, it's not that hard. And once you've done it even a little and you know how to look at a lung, it's not that much different to look at a bladder. Right. And, and it's not that much different to look at a vein. Now, now well, now, so now the, the older docs were mad at me. Now the radiologists are going to be mad at me. I get that it's different, but the point is that holding the probe and how, the, how you, where do you put the machine and like the stance, like all, all those little things. Like once you break the seal on that for a single application, the rest of the applications will dictate themselves. Right. And then maybe you're ready to go and jump in both feet and say like, Hey, now I do want to get like a general broad overview and I'll do one of those courses at, you know, well, a place like Gulf Coast that, or, or you go to your specialty society, you know, internal medicine, cardiology, um, emergency medicine, family medicine. They all have national conferences and almost every one of them now has a, uh, an ultrasound course around that conference. So you go to one of those and you do spend a day or two and look at everything from eyeballs to toenails and you and everything in between and you scan everything. And then you can have a little more experience and say like, wow, once I broke the seal and now I see everything that's out there, now I know that there's these two or three applications that I'm really interested in and I'm going to focus on those. You can't focus on everything at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's like me trying to focus on a golf swing. You guys might know I'm terrible at golf <laughs> and I can't possibly address the ball and think about where my toes are and where my heels are, where my butt is and how bent my knee is and how straight my left elbow and how crooked my right elbow and where my head. You can't do all that. That's true. So if you just think about one thing and do it and do it long enough so that you get okay at it mm-hmm. and then you can decide what you're going to do. Right. And that's a little bit of deliberate practice. And that's a little bit of um, getting competent, not necessarily yet, not yet getting expert, right? Absolutely. So people, I think, also think about this thing in terms of, you know, and there's a difference between these things, right? When, when you know, that book about, you know, 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, that's intimidating. Mm-hmm. Like you're never going to become Bill Gates or one of the Beatles or all the other examples in that <laughs> book because you're like, well, who has 10,000 hours to focus on this thing? Right. right. But then there's some other books that talk about like, hey, it probably takes you 20 hours to get good enough. And good enough is different. And good enough is good enough to know if you like it or not. And that's right. what I, you know, work with for myself and for my kids. You know, you thought you wanted to play viola. All right. After 20 hours, you'll be good enough 
to know whether you actually like it or not, but you, you're not going to give up before then. Right. And once you've done it a bit or you've played a sport a little bit and you've had a season under your belt or something like that, now you can know with some accuracy and, and, and some truth about is this really my thing or not? So if you get good enough at looking at a lung or a heart or figuring out where a vessel is and putting a needle into it, then you can decide it's not for you anymore. And I don't know anybody who's gotten good enough who's decided it's not for them. Yeah, we've seen it here ourselves. We have participants come through and I I tell you, once they have one, just sometimes it's a repeat participant who was here before and now they're back for another course and they're just with excitement in their eyes and jitters in their body. They're telling us about how ultrasound helped them diagnose and, and ultimately save a patient's life. And you're hooked once you get started. Once you get over that hump, you're just hooked. You can't put it down. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's perfect advice to it's baby steps. You know, you take one thing at a time and, and like anything that's that you're trying new, you're not going to be an expert after three days or five days. It's something that you have to be willing to invest the time and be committed to learning it. But as you say, you know, I think 20 hours is a good, good, uh, time period to say, yeah, this can work for me and I want to learn more or this is definitely, I don't have the, I don't have what it takes to do it, but um, I don't think we've ever seen anybody turn it away either, you know, from our experience. Even so. when they should have. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, now. <laughs> uh, and, and I think, and I think it's also worth clarifying that when we talk about, well, you know, I'm the one who said it, so I'll take the blame for this. <laughs> when I talk about good enough, I'm talking about, a person who's a trained medical professional, a nurse, a PA, a doctor, right? Right. Who already has clinical experience, who already knows how to, for example, place an IV and has maybe done 100, 200, 500 intravenous lines. And now you're adding ultrasound as an additional level of skill. And that person, given their prior experience, can then take that new information and say, this is helping me or not helping me. I don't see the anatomy I'm expecting, so I'm not going to blindly stick a needle in because I already know what I'm doing. I'm not going to turn into I'm not going to turn into a neophyte again just because the ultrasound piece is new. So learning the new ultrasound piece with the prior basis of your existing training is sort of analogous to learning how to do it with a new kind of needle, a different brand of syringe, a new needle technique that you haven't seen before, but you already have a background of techniques. And same thing with looking at a heart. If you're looking at an ultrasound image of a heart and it jives with what your clinical suspicions were and what your uh, your the stethoscope auscultation was and it jives with the patient's medical history, you might not have been doing it for very long. But if you were asking a simple question and you're getting reliable information that makes sense for your clinical practice, then that's actionable. Um, I'm not suggesting, and hopefully nobody would misunderstand me, that, that um, you know people are just picking up a brand new skill totally from scratch with no context to put it in. And 20 hours later, they're running amok, right? right um, yeah. when, when you think about a, a nurse, a PA, a doctor, even a you know medic, right? Anybody in a medical profession that's 20, that's 20 hours, that's not their, that's not 20 hours. That's their 5,000th and 20th hour. That's their 10,000th exactly. and 20th hour. So that, and that's, you know, especially with what started this conversation, which, which is a, a, you know, a clinician who's been practicing for a long time without having used ultrasound. I'm talking about someone 
decades of experience right. that they can really fit this new technology into their existing practice paradigm. So right. again, I, I hopefully nobody would hear this and think that like, yeah, Brett thinks that like five, 10 hours into a brand new thing. Now everybody knows what they're doing. Well, no, that's just like a lay person wouldn't take like a weekend course in liposuction at Las Vegas and right. then set up a clinic. Right. <laughs> um, but of an experienced surgeon who's been doing operations on people, including cosmetic surgeries for decades, took a course on how to do a new technique, well, they can incorporate that into their practice a lot more easily than right. someone who's learning it from scratch. Absolutely. That's a good explanation and um, reiteration of, you know, what's involved with the training and who's performing the ultrasound. And, and, and as we always say, you know, the more that you scan, the better you get, the less time it takes you to um, actually obtain the images, the better quality your images will be at, with time. And so, uh, you're not stopping there. You're just, it's, it's about that point where you're getting your aha moment and everything kind of clicks and you, you feel like more confident in what you're doing and what you're seeing and, and your ability to recognize pathology. So that like anything that you learn new, it takes time and practice. And, and, you know, if you go back and look at exams that you did, you know, five years ago and compare them to what you're doing now, obviously you're going to see a lot of change and, and, in uh, the image quality and so forth. So, you know, it's just, it's uh, something that everyone has to realize that there is, there is training involved with it. And in just because we have handheld systems that are smaller, uh, easier access, more affordable, that that doesn't mean that you still don't have to go through the, the educational process and, and learn how to scan. But as you said, once you, once you've learned the basic fundamentals of scanning and you know how to optimize your system controls, you already know your anatomy. You just need to really know how to view it with ultrasound and the difference between normal and abnormal. And even if you don't know what the abnormal is, you know it's nor not normal. So then you can go through your list of differentials and you know correlate that with your clinical patient's clinical history and and narrow it down. So it's it's utilizing all of your skill sets in combination with what you're learning and Im implementing into your clinical practice with the ultrasound. So, you know, I think it's, it, this has been an awesome discussion about the use of handheld systems. We are kind of uh, running to the end of our, our time period here. So before we wrap it up, did you have any other words of wisdom that you wanted to share with us or <laughs> <laughs> we could sit here and talk with you all day long. You're an amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll have to have our, our, our first five hour podcast next time I'm down with you guys in person. <laughs> but, um, uh, no, I, I think this was, this is always just a great discussion and, and it's, and it's fun even, even revisiting the same kind of concepts, several times different different components come out of it you know I'm, I'm glad that we were able to um to cover things like training and you know future state and uh, examples of other technologies that have evolved in a similar way that ultrasound is evolving you know and that's that's one you know those are just several different directions the handheld discussion can go there there mm -hmm. are definitely others so right. i'm glad to speak about this or any other topic uh, more with you guys awesome well, we have thoroughly enjoyed our time with you today, and we haven't been able to have you down here with all the COVID uh, situations over the past year and a half, but um, we're looking forward to you coming down next year to help us with our emergency medicine courses. And for those of you who are joining us today, Dr. Nelson, as I mentioned, he's one of our faculty here at Gulf Coast. He's authored several books, which we also have available here. And 
We hope that you will join us at one of our educational programs or utilize some of our educational resources. If you have any questions, we are always here and happy to help you with any questions that you might have about anything ultrasound, because that's what we do, everything ultrasound. So we, I want to thank you all for joining us today. And Tricia, thanks for joining me as co-host. Absolutely. It was a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Nelson, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks so much, Lori. Thank you, Tricia. Okay. All right, look you guys. Look forward to it again. All right. And be sure to stay tuned for some additional episodes. We hope you all have a great day. Have a great day, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Sonography Lounge. Don't forget, if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, at Sonography Lounge, and Twitter, at Sonography LNG. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, feel free to send an email to us at sonographylounge at gmail.com. Have a great week and scan, scan, scan.